the word that will go forth this morning is from the book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 16. You'll see that I've made a bit of a course revision. Uh, those of you memorizing the book of Ephesians with me, continue to do so. This week we're in verses 1 to 4, but you want to, may want to add verse 5 because uh, you'll break in the middle of the sentence otherwise. Next week we'll come back again and look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. It's been so wonderful to have the uh, orchestra and the choir here and to have Julian Revy back from Cambridge University and back home. Just so thankful for, for all that God is doing here in the life of our church. Now, as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you have to uh, picture being there in the northern part of Israel in Galilee. A big festival going on and Jesus takes you and 11 others to the side. And then he declares something that's absolutely unbelievable. Let's stand and hear what he has to say. Matthew chapter 5, remembering that we are hearing this, the word of our Father. Jesus declares, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. And this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Have you ever noticed that when we trust Christ, when we become followers of Jesus, and He brings us into this unexpected family that I've been talking about, a family made up of people of every nation and every language group and every people group, that when we enter into that eternal family, that God doesn't just zap us away from the earth and take us up to heaven to be with that family. Have you, have you noticed that? I don't think I said that clearly. We're here. We're, we're here. He hasn't zapped us away, has he? And the implication of that to me is there must be a role, a practical role, that God would have us to play for him here while we're here on this earth. We are made people who are no longer, according to the scripture, of this world. We have a new Lord, a new citizenship, but you and I are still placed in this world. And it seems to me we're placed in this world to live differently, to be different kinds of people, to show this world that God is here and that there is always hope to make a difference to the glory of God. And I think that there is no passage that speaks about that more clearly or concisely than what Jesus says in a part of his Sermon on the Mount in the text I just read, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Now, I've been a little bit concerned about preaching this because I'm sure we've all heard it so often. Do you know what I found? That even people who almost never go to church know the phrase, you're the salt of the earth. Somebody would like, well, that's the salt of the earth. We, we may not know where it comes from or who said it, 
but we know the words. And those of us who are longtime churchgoers, we've heard this text so often that I'm afraid we won't hear it in a new and fresh way. I want you to know that when Jesus first spoke these words, I, I think they were among the most shocking ever spoken. I know that for those who heard them, they had to have been among the most encouraging. People who thought their lives surely could never count are now told that they can make a difference in this world because Jesus declares to them, you, and then emphatically, you, you are the salt of the whole earth. And you, you are the light of this world. What I want to do just so briefly today is to ask three simple questions about that statement of Jesus and then think about its practical implications for us living here in Southern California, fall 2008. Are you ready? First, I want to ask the question, who is this salt and light? Who is this salt and light? Now, to get the significance of Matthew chapter 5, you can't imagine living in a, um, a powerful, economically strong country like the United States or a big country like China or Argentina. <laughs> you can't imagine that. We have friends from Argentina on the front row. Never sit on the front row. You become sermon illustrations, don't you? You, you can't imagine that, though. You, you can't imagine being in a, in a country where people expect great things to happen through your country. Uh, you, you never win gold medals. Uh, the, the people where Jesus was speaking to them uh, in his country were not a free people. They were the, under the oppression of Rome. The point I want to make is nobody would expect much to come out of this country. In that world, it was hardly known. So you can't expect much to take place. Now, even within your little oppressed country, you've got to imagine being a small minority group. Because you've begun to follow this Jesus. And did you know even the people in your own country are suspicious of you and me as followers of Jesus? Uh, the political leaders wanted nothing to do with them. The religious leaders were holding them at arm's length. In other words, you can't imagine having a huge worship center like this. Can't imagine Christian radio, Christian books. They had nothing like that. So a small minority group within a small oppressed country. You have to be so depressed right now thinking nothing can happen through us. Well, on one particular day, your leader, Jesus, pulls you away from a festival that's going on in Galilee, pulls you away, takes you up to sort of an elevated place. It's called the Sermon on the Mount where he can talk with you. Um, I, I, I can imagine him looking out over the people of the festival, people that he had come to help to change their lives, but people who were ignoring him. Maybe with his eyes of faith, he could see his entire nation and even the city of Jerusalem, the place where he would die, though he had come to rescue them. And maybe with his eyes of faith, Jesus could even see this larger mission that he says was his, that he would not be done until there would be a people group who belonged to God, a family who had come and found forgiveness in new life, and a family made up not just of people in his home country, but of all over the world. That was the mission, and yet they knew nothing about him. Now he looks down at the group of people through whom he's going to begin this work. And what does he see? I'm telling you, he doesn't see much. Not in those original disciples. He sees four fishermen. Now, a fisher, or important, four fishermen, what can you do through fishermen? He, he sees a tax collector, and nobody likes them. He does see one politician, but he's a zealot, and nobody follows them. And, and yet, it is to this group of unlikely, 
unexpected people that God would say, that Jesus would say, you are the salt of the whole earth and you are the light of the entire world. Now, now to grasp this, you have to know the importance of salt in that world. We put some up here for you to see it. Uh, Salt in that world was like gold because you remember they didn't have any refrigeration. So salt was used for many things, but the main thing was that it preserved food. And I am telling you, when food would be decaying, especially in a warm climate, it was such incredible value. And light in a, in a world that didn't have electricity became such, such so important. It could be so transformative of everything. It's a shocking thing to think about this, that he looked at this unlikely group of fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, and say, you are the salt of the whole earth. And you're the light of the entire world. It shows us on, on one side how God views this world that we are in. Um, it's a world that needs salt. It's a world that is deteriorating, and we know that's true, right? And it's a world that needs light. And if you love people and, and you have some friends who, who are not followers of the Lord, you'll know that people want to live well. And that so many times don't know how. The very things they think are good often lead them in the wrong direction. They need light showing them how to live. How is God, who loves this world so much that He gave His one and only Son, going to provide help for a world that He loves? Many ways, but the main one is this. He is going to take ordinary people. I mean, in the eyes of of the world, less than ordinary people, like these disciples. And He is going to turn them into the salt and the light who will change this world. It takes tremendous vision, and yet we know it's happened, don't we? Because here we are. How did it start, this message that now has reached all the way to Southern California, here in the 21st century? It started through a group of unlikely people. Who is this salt and light then? Who are these people whom God will use in this world? Well, I'm just telling you, look in the mirror. Anyone who is a follower of the Lord Jesus... Even those who may be among the small uh, and the, the, those who don't look like the extraordinary are those that when we give our lives to Christ, he gives himself to us and sends us into this world as his ambassadors. We are the salt and light. Second, how on earth is Jesus going to do it? How does God bring hope to a world through people who seem less than ordinary in the eyes of the world. Now, I'll tell you, uh, because of the jobs that God has given me in my life, I've read all of these management and leadership books, and they give me directives about how you're supposed to approach this. And you know what they would say to me? They would say, do a resource assessment. Sort of look at the people that you have around you, what gifts do they have, and start building a strategic plan. Now, I'm not against strategic planning, but I'm just telling you, you know what, what we would probably do? We'd probably say, okay, what do we have here in these 12 disciples who are up there? Oh, my. Oh, well, we have some people who are fishermen. And that, that Peter, he has quite a personality. Maybe I could get him to hijack one of Caesar's warships so that through military might we could change the world. Wouldn't we think that way? Oh, oh well, we got a politician over here, too. This is Simon. Maybe he could start a political action group or a lobby group, and he could lobby for Jesus, and through that he could make a difference through politics. Oh, I'm starting to meddle, right? Yes. Oh, 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 there's a businessman over here. 
Yes, he's a dishonest one, this, this Matthew the tax collector. But maybe he could fund a marketing campaign. And through that, we're going to change the world. Now, you know I'm doing this tongue-in-cheek. I hope you're listening to me carefully, even in the balcony. I believe from the depths of my heart that God sends his people, those in his family, into the military. And he sends his people, as I'm going to talk about in a moment, into the political arena. And I'll tell you, he sends people into business and into education, into all arenas of life. But it's not through power using those vehicles that God usually does his work. He does his work by sending us into those places as different kinds of people. How do I see that? If you have your Bible in front of you, Lake Avenue Church people, newcomers, you'll, you'll see this. When you read the Bible, you shouldn't just pull a text like the one we're looking at out of its context. Instead, you should read all around it. And when you do, you see the kinds of people that Jesus talks about who will be salt and light. What does he see? In verses 1 through 12, we have what are called the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. You're, you're living the way God would have you to live if you live in a certain way. And then at the end he will say, those are the kinds of people who are the salt and the light in this world. Well, what kinds of people are they? And what he describes are inner character traits. Uh, and so the salt and the light in this world are people of distinctive inner moral character. What kinds of things? I've written some of them up here for you. If you read through the Beatitudes between verses 3 and 11, you will see that the kind of person that is going to make a difference in this world is a person who is not proud or arrogant. But we know we are utterly dependent upon God. We're poor in spirit. Also, when we see the things that are happening in our world, we don't rejoice when we see the evil. We, we mourn because of our own sin and the suffering in the world and what we see all around us. Blessed are they who are able to mourn. But even in mourning about what is happening in our world, we hunger, we long for what is good and right in our world. Christians, isn't that true? Blessed are those, verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But even when we look out and we see a world where we long for what is right and what is going on is not right, instead of hating those who are our enemies, we're merciful. We're ready to forgive. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And especially when we see people divided from one another, partisan kind of things happening. Instead of simply making it worse, Christians, we step in and try to help people hear one another. We are peacemakers, and it's hard to be a peacemaker, isn't it? Because people only want you to take their sides. But in spite of the fact that we are these humble gentle people who passionately care about what is right and long for peace, we are persecuted. Verse 10. You see when you read this, that these are the character traits and life of Jesus himself. Essentially what God is saying is this. Those who are going to make a difference for me in this world will be different kinds of people on the inside. When everybody else is overreacting, we won't. But when everybody else is creating problems and, 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 and breaks in relationships, we're going to be trying to bring about reconciliation and peace. And he says, when we are growing in our inner beings, we will be salt and light in the world. So the first kind of person that God uses wherever he sends us is a person of a distinctive inner moral character. Do you see that? Is that clear? 
But second, as you look at verses 17 and following, what Jesus does is he takes us back into the Old Testament, all through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And he teaches people how God has created us to live, just as I tried to do in the Ten Commandments. And what he talks about is we're going to have more faithful marriages. Our sexual lives will show more purity. Uh, when, when people are against us, we're going to somehow tolerate our enemies. No, no, no. We're going to love them. We're going to be people of prayer. We're going to be people who are generous. In other words, what he talks about is not only will the salt and light be people of distinctive inner lives, but people whose exterior conduct is distinctively different as well. So here is how God is planning to take ordinary people to change the world. He is going to take followers of Jesus just like we have here today. He's going to send us into all kinds of occupations, all different schools, all different communities. And as we continue to grow, our inner beings will become more like Christ and our lives will be more in conformity with the way God would have us to live than simply we want to live on our own. And as we are different people in those places, we will make a positive difference for the cause of Christ. Which brings me to the third question. How might we fail, and the way I put it is, to be what we are? Do you understand that? God says that we are salt and we are light when we're his followers. But you know, sometimes when we go into places, we're not nearly as salty as we should be. And we don't shine as much light as we should. So, so how might we fail? And he, Jesus, in his, his discussion, talks about two ways. One is this. God might send us into the world, but we are failing to be involved in this world. He says, what good is it if you have light? And, and yet, even though the world is in darkness, you hide all of the light under a bushel. No, 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 he says. A light is meant to shine. A light is meant to shine and give light to the whole house. It, it's meant to shine, really, into the entire world. Now, you know that this is one of our biggest problems in church life in America, that people who become followers of Jesus within two years often have very few non-Christian friends. I understand why. We feel more comfortable with people who agree with us. We often are afraid, you know, afraid uh, to let people know that we are followers of the Lord Jesus, especially as sometimes other Christians sort of embarrass us. But what happens is we often withdraw. But I'll tell you, even though we might like to just be with other children of the light, when you just get all the light into one place, all we do is blind one another. Because <laughs> light wasn't meant to just shine on itself. You get all the salt in one place. I almost thought I would have Dwayne come up and just have a whole meal of salt so that we could show you that salt isn't meant to be eaten all at once. It's meant to be spread out over everything. Light is meant to shine. Salt is meant to touch a deteriorating world. And if we withdraw from the uh, educational enterprises of this world, if there are occupations that are hard and we think, no, 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 I don't want to do that, that will be hard. If there are communities we are in and we feel like we're the only Christians. It might be it's because God would have you and me to be salt and light in those difficult places. Do you see that? We could fail by failing to shine into the darkness of this world. And second, we might fail by being willing to be out in the world, but being indistinguishable from the world. Our lives will be exactly the same as everybody else. 
Did you see how Jesus puts it? Salt, you've got to continue to be salty. We've got to be salty people. If salty loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. He says, you're good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled. You see, salt is different from that which it is to preserve. And light is different from the darkness that it's to shine into. How are we to be different? Well, again, I point you to Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And Matthew 5, 17 and following. Our inner lives must be different. As people are mean-spirited and dishonest, you and I have to go into those places and continue to grow as God would have us to grow and be what he would have us to be. That's how we might fail. Failing to be involved in the world, just kind of gathering into our Christian ghettos, failing to be different when we go into the world so that the world can see our lives, but as Jesus puts it in verse 16, but give praise to God. Now, I want to stop for just a moment so that you and I might apply this to a particular issue that we're facing. I've been praying so much about this, and you know, I just want to give you some guidelines about it. We now find ourselves in the midst of an election process here in the United States. I keep asking myself, how do I, as your pastor, give you any kind of guidelines about how we might be salt and light in this world? I know this. There are two ways we can fail. What are they? One, we can fail to be involved. Just ignore it as if God didn't place us in this world. Or number two, we can go ahead and be involved and just do it the way everybody else does. Be indistinguishable from the world as as a whole. So how do we do it? Well, I grew up in a church where I was told that uh, you don't talk about politics in church. It's because of the First Amendment. But when I read the First Amendment, I know that's not what it's talking about. I know that Jesus tells us to be involved in this world. And even though I do believe... um, that we should not start political rallies or campaign for one party or one individual. I'll, I'll tell you what I believe. I think that if I, as your pastor, do not take time to try to think about what the scriptures have to say about political, moral, or ethical issues, you and the world as a whole will say the Bible is irrelevant to where we live. And it isn't. It, it, it speaks to these issues. But the question is, how do we do it in a different way? And I'm going to give you just a couple of guidelines. Are you ready? Number one, I want us to remember, as we are going to be involved, uh, even in that part of our world, I want us to remember that as Christians, we have an ultimate allegiance. And our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. We have a different Lord. So we have an allegiance beyond any human or political allegiance to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In fact, that helps us to understand why it is that any political government in this world is going to be imperfect. We have a citizenship in the only perfect nation, and that is in heaven, according to Paul in Philippians 3.20. So with realism and humility, we're going to live in this world fully aware that political change will not and cannot usher in the kingdom of God. That that, that we know the limitations of the political arena. That whatever we vote on in any proposition, whatever we vote on with any party, is probably in and of itself not going to strengthen our marriages and families. Right? 
not going to rid our lives or our world of self-centeredness and greed. And it's not going to set us free from addictions. Human systems cannot change the human heart. So we're going to start with that principle. We have found the only one to whom we have an ultimate allegiance. That is our King of Kings. Second, as a guideline, as we're involved in this world, our normal course of action, I think, is that we will be good citizens. Um, Although we have an allegiance to God that transcends any government in this world, as a normal course of action, I think Romans 13 instructs us. Listen to what Paul says. Everyone, he would say, writing to people in Rome, that's significant, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except what God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, and they are there for our good. Now, you might think, ah, that Paul must have lived in a lot better government than we live in. I tell you, it wasn't. It was the most violently anti-Christian probably in the history of the world. In fact, it's the one through whom he himself was put to death. But the principle is pretty clear, that those who are followers of Jesus should be able to be counted on generally as being good citizens, those who will follow the laws of the land. There are times, according to the book of Acts, when we have to take a stand against some of the laws that govern our country. But I think that those are exceptions. And it's only when it's crystal clear that the laws of our world are contradicting the laws of God that we should do so. The general rule is you and I should be counted on to be good citizens wherever God puts us. Guideline number three. I see our involvement in the political process as a stewardship. Now, um, we have a lot of people here at Lake Avenue Church who come from other countries, and I think you will, for the most part, support what I have to say right here. I think we who have the privilege of living right now in the United States have an opportunity that many of our brothers and sisters throughout history uh, and, and throughout our world have not always had. We live in a country, you know, of, by, and for the people. And you and I are a part of that of, by, and for. So we're a part of that. But for me, what that means is that we live in a place where we're not only allowed to be involved in the political process, which many have not been because they've lived in monarchies or, 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 uh, or anti-Christian governments, but not only are we allowed to do so, but we're encouraged to do so. Because of that, in my view, we should do the opportunity to be involved in our world in the political process as a stewardship, as a stewardship. So that as, as in this stewardship, we try to seek for what is the best way forward and how we might speak into it. Uh, what we uh, uh, always do is to make sure that we understand the issues and that we use the stewardship that God has given us. Uh, in what way? Which brings me to the fourth principle. I think that there is one demand of a good stewardship, and that is, according to 1 Corinthians 4.2, it is required of a steward to be found faithful. So if the ability to be salt and light in the political arena is a stewardship, then we should be faithful. Faithful to do what? I think to learning the issues, to investigating objectively the positions that are at stake in an election, I think, second, you and I should be faithful to try to be the kind of people who do what we're doing right now. We open this word and try to see what God's word has to say. 
and think through how it is to be applied to the issues that face us in our world, to be the best appliers of the scripture to the issues that face us. And then we should be stewards of speaking and understanding and at least of voting. I'll tell you, I've had so many people say, I don't like any of the options. And I usually say back, then we have to make the best judgment that we can by God's grace. Because one way that you and I can fail to be salt and light in any arena in the world is if we fail to be involved. But second, we might say, okay, I'm going to be involved. But in our involvement, we could be indistinguishable from the rest of the world. Well, how might we be distinguishable? Well, I've written down a few things here, too. We might be distinguishable by being willing to speak graciously to one another. Wouldn't that be different from the rest of the world? Speaking graciously, even with people who disagree with us. I'll tell you what happens when we do. Uh, We often learn from them. Even though we only want to pound them on the head so that they'll agree with us. If we'll speak graciously and listen graciously, uh, we will often learn and gain a much broader perspective. No amens. Second, I, I, th- I think we should also treat one another with kindness. And again, especially those who disagree with us. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 to 47? Christians are distinctive because we love our enemies. I, I suppose that I shouldn't be surprised because I have found that people who are on the left and people are, who are on the right can be mean people. Have you noticed that or am I the only one who's seen it? Have you noticed that people who are red and blue and all shades of purple in between can be immoral and dishonest? Have you noticed that? Christians, as we are involved in this world, we must commit ourselves not to being mean people and certainly committing ourselves to morality and good ethics. Let us treat one another kindly. Third thing that I just... I'm praying for for us as a church family is that we'll see one another's with the eyes of Christ. You know, that we can look at one another and see that we are valuable people for whom Christ died so that we can even come to church and know that in a church like Lake Avenue, we're going to have a whole lot of people who disagree with us. I have found that this church has broader viewpoints on everything than any church I've ever been in. And I want us to learn to talk with one another and learn from one another and listen to one another. And even when we see people who disagree with us and it makes no sense to us to still see that they are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ and not break relationship because we're going to be in heaven forever. So I want us to learn to see with the eyes of Christ. And then always, as we gain understanding, let us act with a blend of courage and humility. I pray that even my message would be like that. Courage to speak what we understand as well as we understand it, always blended with the humility of Christ. So we might fail, but I'm praying we won't. In every arena of life, I'm praying that we are going to uh, be salt and light. So let us look to be involved, but let us also, in our involvement, be distinctive Christ-like kinds of people. Now, practically speaking... Uh, what might that look like and what we're facing in our day. Uh, These are some from me more than from the Lord, so listen with great, great uh, care. There are several things that are guiding me as I think about being salt and light in this election year. I'll tell you what some of them are. 
One is, I do find, and you've heard me say this, so this won't surprise you, I do find that the Bible is unequivocal in teaching us that a marriage is to be of a man to a woman. Uh, I've told you that in Genesis 2.24 and in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about it. So in, in one sense, as everybody says, well, it, that is a biblical issue, and it is. The Bible is clear about that. But, you know, it's not just that. It's not just a religious issue. That as you look through the history of the world and you look across the cultures of this world, you'll find that the general teaching has also been that, so that the decision that our state Supreme Court made is one that flies not only in the face of biblical teaching, but also in the face of cultural and historic understanding. And I really think that that should affect our involvement with Proposition 8 these days. I don't know how I can see it otherwise. A second point that I think we talk too little about is it's clear to me in the Bible that any good government should care and provide for the poor and the struggling within its boundaries. I mean, I read through the Old Testament, and no matter which government was in place, God was, was consistent in saying there are at least three groups that you have to watch out for. They were the widows, the orphans, and the foreigner. Widow, orphan, and foreigner. What do those three groups have in common? Those were the three groups that the support systems in Israel didn't, didn't have any help for. The family was the support system. And so government was to watch out for those people who didn't have any support. And my basic principle is this. Any government that doesn't care in a compassionate way for the poor and the struggling and those who are not supported within its boundaries will not be a good government. And so we need to seek to see where might that happen. If you don't agree with me, just read the book of Amos and Micah and you'll see it. I think you'll repent and then come back and say, you're right, you're right. <laughs> a third point that is guiding me through this season is that I know that a good government will value the lives of its people and all people. It will value the human lives of its people and all people. Now, I apply this in so many ways to the valuing of life, both at its very beginning, at conception, as well as at its very end. These ongoing debates about the quality of life, that a person's not really human when they get to be old or infirm or, or disabled, those things have absolutely no standing in biblical teaching. All people are of value and, and need to be valued by the powers and structures that are there. And I also think that a good government that will represent much more the kind of morality that I, that I believe in will respect people from other countries with respect and want to operate in such a way that negotiations will bring about blessing and benefit not just for one but for all. Now, this is a hard thing. This is something worth talking about. What might that actually look like in terms of the election that is going on now? But I think it's a biblical principle. I think the last that I'll just mention, I have others, but I also think that a good government will always seek to restrain evil, will deal with what is wrong, and try to promote what is good. Now, I'll tell you, that will give us some debate, debate about what is good and what is evil and what actually restrains evil, what actually promotes good. Uh, I'll let you work that out. But the principle is so clear for me that any authority in this world, whether in our church or in our family or in government, has as one of its main goals where evil is there to restrain it and where goodness is there to reward it and to further it. And I think that the kind of person 
that we would want to vote for would be the one who most fully embraces what God's word says to be good. It was written to people in authority. And it was written not just to God's people. Micah 6.8 God has shown you, O Adam, O man, all human beings, by his dealings, what is good. And what does the Lord require? To seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Now this is one of those points where you might say, nobody does this very well, Pastor. (laughs) But once again, we are called upon... We're called upon to use the wisdom that God gives us to think about who most fully embraces the furtherance of justice with mercy and humility. At the end of the day, I was talking with this with uh, John Lewis, the head of our ministry council. He gave me a statement in an email that I loved, so I'll give it to you as well. Since we know that the ultimate solution to the human condition is not to be found in political action, but in Christ. When we are salt and light in the world, we must consider how our actions, political or otherwise, either bring others closer to a gracious, heart-changing relationship to Christ or else drive them further away from it. I I just want to say, if you want to have some further uh, thought about this, there's a wonderful interview published in what is called the Leadership Journal, the summer of 2008. It's a a discussion with Chuck Colson, uh, Shane Claiborne, and Greg Boyd. Talk about three different viewpoints. Read it and stand in wonder. At the end of the day, I just want to tell you that as we come back to this teaching of Jesus, one of the areas where I really believe God would have us to be salt and light is this one. Now, it is just one. So as I bring the service to a close, I want to broaden it again. I want you to see yourself as salt and light sent out into the world, Uh, particularly to those of you who may feel like you're the only Christian in your family, in your workplace, in your school, or to your community, I want to encourage you with this. That you know that it doesn't take very much salt to make a big difference in the food. Did you know that? And when you have tremendous darkness, it doesn't take very much light to transform the place. And if you go into some of those very difficult places, I know it sometimes is very hard to be where God would have you to be. I want you to know that at least for now, God almost certainly has sent you to that place. And I want you to hear his words to these unlikely people. I mean, who could have ever expected anything to happen through those 12? Less than ordinary in the eyes of the world. Those 12 men. And yet it has happened. So I want you to hear his words transcending the ages, transcending history, and coming straight to you. Hear Jesus proclaim, you, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of this world. When we leave this place, let us go and touch lives for the glory of God and let us shine so that people may see us. But in seeing us, give praise to the Father. To his glory. Amen. I would like us to take just a few moments for prayer. We're going to be singing together at, at the end of each one of these sections of prayer. If you'd like to use the kneeler that you have in front of you, you may. I want us to think about these two areas where Jesus has said we may fail. 
first. I want you to think about being involved as salt and light in the world. Where has God put you? I want you to think about, is there a role that God would have you to play there? Is there someone that he's put you next to? Maybe they don't even know that you're a Christian. And yet you know they need the hope of Christ. Maybe for some reason you've continued to withdraw from touching lives because of fear, discomfort. Take a few moments to bring that to God. Ask God to show you what you should do in that place where he's put you, in your family, community, school, or workplace. Then I'll come back. Take just a few moments for prayer.